Welcome to The Way Home with Laura Smith, the show that brings you wonderful guests, helpful advice, and uplifting stories, all brought to you by Balance of Nature, fruits and veggies in a capsule, and a whole health system. The Way Home, be inspired. Here's your host, Laura Smith. It's amazing to be here today. Uh, this is one of those days that uh, I look very forward to, and in fact, I when I look back over my life, my professional life over the last uh, 25 years of being in radio, I, there are a few highlights that uh, kind of jump out at me. And one of them was uh, running a, a whole channel on what is now known as Sirius XM. It used to be called Sirius Satellite Radio. It was called the Lime Channel, which was healthy living with a twist. And it was sort of green health and wellness with um, some spirituality thrown into the mix. It was really a sort of a dream come true and uh, something I had always wanted to do, And it, but it lasted for a, a short three years. During that three years, I was really, um, I mean, it was my job to go out and find extremely wonderful talent in those realms of health and wellness of spirituality. And what I consider my greatest get um, with the 35 programs, well, one of them out of uh, a few of them that are just so memorable, was um, an author of a series of books that I had read when I was younger that so changed my life. I thought if I can get this man to do my be on the channel with his own show, I will, um, you know, it will be really hitting the jackpot. That man happened to be. Neil Donald Walsh, he was the author of the world blockbuster series Conversations with God that literally changed the world and the the way we um, have discussions about uh, God, religion, spirituality. And in fact, the name of his show on the channel was Conversations with God. But here all these many years later, many years later, 39 books and a brand new one, which is aptly entitled The God Solution. The Power of Pure Love. Neil, thank you for joining me today on the way home. It's really kind of really otherworldly for me. Thank you for being here. Well, it's lovely to be here with you, Laura. You know, I've always enjoyed our, our connection, and I appreciate the invitation and the opportunity. Thank you. It's so, you know, many, I think there's not a human being, you know, on the planet that reads books that hasn't heard of conversations with God but for those that uh, may be hearing your name for the first time in a long time or um, as an, a rabid fan of yours, I should say, and your writings, just a real quick synopsis of how it began. I, you know, I remember reading Conversations with God the first time, and it, it literally blew up my world. I mean, I just couldn't. It was so it was so reaffirming and so um it, it felt so radical, and yet it felt like what I had been thinking of my whole life, and I was just so grateful that someone had put it into words. But at the time that you kind of uh, started writing these books, they, they were, you felt that they were inspired. You were living a life that was kind of down and out on your luck, and um, you can tell a little bit of the immediate story that brought you into writing Conversations with God. One, well, two, three, four, and the rest. <laughs> yeah, Laura, um... Well, what's interesting is that I spent 50 years, that's five zero, not one five, 50 years in broadcasting. Uh, I, I began my broadcasting career at the age of 19. 
and I had done everything you could do in radio. I, you know, talk shows and news editor, I mean, news director of a radio station and ultimately program director of the radio station. And, uh, and I had done, you know, straight, just disc jockey work, just everything you could do in broadcasting. I had done it. Uh, and then my career came to an abrupt dead end. Um, I'd, I'd also done some writing work for newspapers, but I found myself at the age of 50, 49 to be precise, simply you know, out of work. The, the, the radio station, you know, the, the, the broadcasting industry changed dramatically in the 50 years that I was involved in it. And pretty soon everything was being syndicated and, you know, you had to, you had to live in somewhere, in another state somewhere, and you were being, you know, an announcer on 16 different radio stations, introducing records or whatever, and local radio stations were disappearing right and left, including the one that I worked for. And so there I found myself at 49, you know, at the end of uh, the trail, in terms of a career that I thought would be for the rest of my life. And uh, at the same time, Laura, my relationship was uh, had, had uh, fallen apart, uh, and my health had gone rapidly downhill. In fact, I was involved in an automobile accident in which I broke my neck. I suffered a broken neck, and this, the, at the hospital, they said I was, frankly, lucky to, to be alive because many people who have a broken neck, you know, they, they die from the injury, or they're certainly at least paralyzed, you know, often from the waist down or from the neck down. Uh, and But I didn't suffer either one of those outcomes, but just, just by, but I, you know, by fate, I guess. But I remember sitting in my little apartment that I was renting for a few dollars a month and calling out to God in the middle of the night, what does it take to make life work? What have I done? to deserve a life of such continuing struggle. When does this struggle end? I'm so done with it. I've been here a half century, and I still can't seem to pull it together or keep it together. And I was very angry with God, and I I actually wrote a very angry letter to God. I know what I thought I was doing, but there was a yellow legal pad on the coffee table in front of me in the middle of the night, and I got up, and I, I started writing this angry letter to God. And then that's when I began receiving, I want to say, um, messages, if you please. It was like taking dictation. Uh, I remember the first message that I received. It was almost like a voice in the room with me saying, Neil, do you really want answers to all of these questions? Or are you just venting? And I can recall laughing to myself. Now it's 423 in the morning and I'm saying to myself, yeah, 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 I'm pretty angry. I am venting. But if you got answers, I'd sure like to know what they are. And with that, I re- began receiving answers to those questions. And I, I uh, for whatever reason, I never intended to write a book. I didn't start off writing a book. I was just having a process that I considered journaling, maybe, you know, keeping a diary or journaling, whatever you want to call it. I was, and I was writing down the answers that I was being given. And, of course, the answers brought up other questions and then more answers and other questions. Before I knew it, I was caught up in an on-paper dialogue, a back-and-forth question-answer, question-answer, with this voice that was inside my mind. It sounded like the voice of my own thoughts, except there were thoughts I never had, never even dreamt of. In fact, many of the thoughts actually contradicted the thoughts that I had and what I'd been taught in my younger years about life and about God. But I I was fascinated by the process, and I began uh, writing down the answers, asking questions, writing down the answers. And then, Laura, about halfway through that process, I was told, you will make of this one day a book. And it will be accessed by many people. And you know what I thought, Laura? I thought, wow, interesting. Now I got gotcha. you. 
Now I got you, because if this is really some external source of wisdom and clarity, this is the first thing that was said to me that was measurable. Everything else was conceptual, theoretical in nature, could be, could not be, who could know? But here was a statement, this will be one day a book, that I could measure the outcome. And I thought, you know, we'll test God, we'll just see about that. So that's when I sent what I had written so far in handwritten form to a couple of publishers. And, (coughs) excuse me, and by golly, if one of the publishers didn't pick it up and say, you know, this is fascinating stuff. If you could send us a typewritten manuscript, we'll we'll turn it into a book. So I had it. Uh, I found a little stenographer who had typed out the, the manuscript, uh, and we sent it back to the publisher, and they put it out. And by golly, I called it Conversations with God because that's exactly how I experienced it. And by golly, if it didn't sell over a million copies, <laughs> wound up being translated into 37 languages. And, uh, you know, who would have dreamt of such a thing? So then I thought, okay, something very interesting is occurring here. So in the meantime, I was continuing to have the experience. I didn't stop my journaling. I kept it up. But the guys in New York were starting to look at this book, which was published by a small publisher in Virginia. They bought the book from that small publisher, and then they started nagging me. You know you know the old saying, do you have any sisters like that at home? They, <laughs> they wanted to know if I, if I had, you know, any more material like that. I said, well, you know, I've, I've continued my, my journaling. They said, please send us more. So out came book two, what ultimately became book three, uh, and the process continued for nine volumes in the so-called Conversations with God series. I would never have I dreamt, honestly, that anything like this could occur, but I got very clear that these messages were not meant just for me. They have been meant for many people. I'm not sure that I would agree with your definition that it changed the world, but I do think it changed the lives of millions of people. There's no question about that. They, they tell us in New York now, anecdotally, probably between 12 and 15 million people have put their eyes on this material. And so that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Oh, my goodness. I And I could hear it over and over again. And the, And at one point, you were like, well, you were homeless at one point, living in a park or whatever. So then the, these books start coming out. Now, at at any point, was it a temptation to try to change anything or um, no? Honestly, Laura, the- no, 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 no. I wasn't trying to write for my audience. I, I wasn't trying to. Uh, do that. I uh, Honestly, I hate to, st- to start to sound saccharine here. I don't want to sound syrupy, but honestly, it's just between you and me and you know, the, the 40 million people listening to us. I, uh, I considered it too sacred a process. I really thought something sacred, I mean, sacred to me, I didn't need it to be sacred to anybody else, but something that's sacred in my life was happening. And I refused to alter or adjust or somehow manipulate what I was receiving or hearing or what I was writing. Uh, I, I wasn't going to do that. I'm going to just stay clean with it and let it be exactly what it was. So I just kept on allowing myself to copy. Uh, I, I switched from handwriting to a computer after about three books, but I never, ever changed what I was, could I put it this way, hearing in my mind. Honestly, it was like taking dictation. Yeah. It, was, it was like going to the boss, you know, and I would ask a question and the boss would say, well, just take this down. 
And it, that's exactly how I, I experienced it. Like I was simply taking dictation, sometimes long paragraphs at a time. But I did, and I sent it to, to, to the publishers. And by golly, they published nine, several different publishers. They wound up publishing nine different books. And the public did not seem to run out of an interest in them. So uh, that's uh, the answer to that question. My guest is Neil Donald Walsh. He is the dictator. <laughs> no, no, that's not it. <laughs> what the an person who word. <laughs> received the messages in the groundbreaking Conversations with God series. And then another 30 books beyond those, the volume, um, the nine volumes that were, uh, he says, dictated to him um, by seemingly God himself. What was it, if you could encapsulate, I know it's impossible to do nine volumes of this. If you had sort of a, like, three top big hits that came through in those nine volumes about what God was trying to suggest or teach or let us know that perhaps was so unique that hadn't really been expressed in that way. Can can you pinpoint a couple things? Yes, that- I can give you three of them very quickly. Number one, that we are all one. It was the very first message in the very first book, and I think in the first three or four pages of the first book, that all things are one thing. There is only one thing, and all things are part of the one thing there is. And the, the implication is enormous, not just that we are, you know, we are brothers and sisters on the planet, not just in that way. That's true, but, but it goes way beyond that. The statement, we are all one, means that there's no separation between myself and that aspect of life that we call God, that God was saying to me, no, 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 Neil, we are all one and you are simply an individuation of the one thing there is so that every living ascension being is simply a, a singularization of the singularity which were the words I was given that's the first message and that if we understood that we would begin to treat each other in that way uh, and which would change the entire global ethic on the planet the second major message that I received was that my life is not about me I asked God you know what does it take to make life work what have I done wrong here Got, and I remember the answer I got was a kind of a chuckle in her voice. And she said, sweetheart, sweetheart, it's so simple. You think your life is about you and your life has nothing to do with you. Your life is about everyone whose life you touch and the way in which you touch it. But once you begin to understand that, all the things you've been reaching for, searching for, yearning for, seeking, will fall in on you automatically. Because a person who lives their life for others discovers that there really are no others and that everything that's sent out returns to the center. The third message of the three big that you're asking me about is, in fact, to define myself. You know, God invited me to, you know, you need to know who you really are. And you have to, all sentient beings in the universe must come to a decision. Who am I? Am I simply a physical entity? Not much different from a bird in the sky or a fish in the sea. More complex, fair enough. More, more complex, perhaps the most sophisticated of the physical entities. But a physical entity, you know, you live, you're born, you live, you die, and that's it. Or is it possible, just possible, that I'm more than that? Is it possible that I am actually a spiritual entity having a body and a mind, but that my body and my mind are not who I am, that who I am is a spiritual entity, and that my body and my mind are simply tools that allow that spiritual entity to do what it came into physical like uh, the realm, physical realm to do. 
Uh, and that was the, the decision I had to make. And I made the decision. You know, my experience is that I'm a spiritual entity. I have what some people call a soul. And that's really the essence of who I am. That changed everything for me because it caused me to see life as a process of my soul, a process in which my soul was engaged for reasons having nothing to do with earthly objectives or earthly goals. You know, like get the guy, get the girl, get the car, get the job, get the house, get the better car, get the better job, get the better house, get the spouse, get the better spouse, get the better spouse, get the better spouse, get the kids, get the grandkids, get the gray hair, get the retirement watch, get the sickness and get the hell out. And that's how most people live their lives by that formula. And I was invited to live my life by a totally different formula, which apparently has appealed to several million people who have read those same books. <laughs> and are also asking the same questions for millennium. I mean, really. And and when you said the first one was that we are one, and I was just instantly taken back to when Jesus said, I and my father are one. And he, you know, he was basically called a heretic for that. Um, but it's the same premise. So well, he so said more than that. He said more than that. He said, I and the father are one and we are brothers and sisters. And when people looked at him in, in amazement, he would look at, the, at what he did. He would say, why are you so amazed? These things and more shall you do also. Right. It's a direct quote. Yes. He was trying to tell us what, what was true about our identity, not just his. And we've, most of us have rejected uh, what he's right. told us. And, and yet it's still so, so many people embraced your work and, and really ate it up. And yet um, it, I would say it wasn't, there was nothing religious in it. Or to the contrary, people yeah. who belong to religions were quite a little upset with me because they were saying, Neil, everything that you claim God has told you, virtually everything is in direct contradiction of and violates the teachings of virtually every one of the world's major religions. Right. So they called me a, a heretic, an apostate, and a blasphemer. Mm. Yeah, join the crowd, right, the, of the people over... Over the ages that have been called well, the same thing. Well, it was George Bernard, George Bernard Shaw put it perfectly. Shaw said, all great truth begins as blasphemy. Hmm. Absolutely, indeed. My guest is Neil Donald Walsh, the uh, writer and uh, purveyor of the world, I say changing books, but he says maybe soul-changing books for the millions of people who read them, Conversations with God, and another 30 titles after that. He has a brand new book, The God Solution, The Power of Pure Love. I get goosebumps just reading it. I, re I was reading through the manuscript. It there's, it's kind of does the same thing as your Conversations with God books, is that it, it says things that feel so in just completely true. It feels like, of course, that's exactly right. But then I feel like I've, I haven't read that before. And, you know, so, so I am getting a, a deeper education on what this is, but do you feel that this book also was a sort of a sense of being inspired again, or is this a culmination of all you've learned since you started writing your books? Yes. And to both questions. Sorry. Yes, to both. Yeah, yes, yes, to both questions. Oh, okay. It is a culmination. It, it is kind of the denouement, if you please. You know, in the entertainment business, we would call it the eleven o'clock spot. This is the eleven o'clock spot on the playbill. Uh, that is, it's the final book in the series, in my in my feeling, and it culminates. It it, it puts everything. Uh, it's the, really the apotheosis 
of the conversations with God series. Uh, and uh, because it brings it all together in a very thin, short book that is called uh, aptly The God Solution. And it starts off with a daring question. The daring question is, with the world in a mess that it's in, and it's always been in some sort of a mess, one generation after the other, what's the point of having a God? Why, why have a God? If we keep on going through these things, now we're going through you know, this virus thing and the economic world, economic collapse, uh, and the, the racial injustice we're seeing all around the world. What's, what's the point of having a God if, if, you know, if he's not going to interfere or jump in or make things better for us? Mm-hmm. And the book asks, I think it's a very important question. And, and the book proposes a God solution. It says, is it possible that it's not God who's abandoned us or not doing anything with us. It's we who have abandoned God. That is, that is, maybe we've misunderstood who and what God is. Maybe we've misunderstood who and what God wants. Maybe we've misunderstood how to use the so-called higher power. Statistics show, my friend, Laura, that eight out of 10 people believe in a higher power of some sort. That's true, by the way. Anthropological surveys have shown that to be true across all civilizations on the planet right now in every earthly culture. But we, even though eight out of 10 of us agree that there's a higher power, we can't seem to come to an agreement on what is that higher power? How does it work? What does it want? And how can we use it? We can't seem to get together about that. And that's what I call the God dilemma. The God solution provides us the answer to those questions. Oh, and more on that when we return. Uh, my guest is Neil Donald Walsh. He is the author of the 39th book in his series, The God Solution, The Power of Pure Love. We're going to talk about pure love and how that may translate to God and what God is and who God is. And then also the mechanics of it and everything that's offered in this brand new, beautiful book by Neil Donald Walsh. You're listening to the way home. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back. You're listening to the way home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura. Thanks so much for being here tonight. This has been such an incredible, uh, hour for me. And I know that for many of you hearing the voice of Neil Donald Walsh must be something quite extraordinary after so many millions have read his books, the conversation with God series, nine books in that particular series. And then he went on to write another 30. And so his 39th book, he believes is a culmination of all of this wonderful uh, information that he feels was basically dictated to him initially um, and inspired by God and has spent all these many years on on really uh, trying to teach and and just really give us some great insight into what some other options to how we look at the uh, the greatest power in the world that 80% of the population, apparently, according to Neil, uh, believes in. The latest book is The God Solution, The Power of Pure Love. We're talking about that new book now. And when we left off just uh, a few minutes ago, Neil, you were saying, you know, if 80% of the population believes in a so-called higher power, and for the most part, I would say that 90% of those uh, religions in the world have the basic premise of kind of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The golden rule sort of permeates throughout all of these major religions. And yet we all find ourselves here in this day and age, 2021, and we're asking ourselves, if God exists, how come this is happening? What, what, where's the disconnect here? And why? Yeah, where is, yeah, where is God in all of this? I, I hear that question all the time from people in my audience. Look at the world, Neil. Look at the world. Then answer me this question. You say you had a conversation with God. Uh huh. Where is God in all of this? 
and which we, which which always gets causes me to answer a question in return. I mean, to ask a question in return. So I look at my audience and I say, let me ask you guys a question. Is it possible, just possible, that there's something we don't fully understand here about God, about life, and about ourselves? the understanding of which would change everything? If you think there's nothing we don't understand, Neil, it's all there in the book. Just read the book. It's all there in the good book. Uh Uh-huh. Which good book? There are only, incidentally, 67 sacred scripts in the world. Sacred scriptures. Count them. Yes. I I can give you four right off the top of my head. The Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, the Book of Mormon, the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament. I mean, the Upanishads, it goes on forever. Do you know that there are 4,300 known religions on the planet? You may have, you may have missed that statistic. Let me run it past you again. I said, check it out. There are 4,300 known religions on the planet. We can't seem to get our ideas about God together to form one simple definition. What the God's solution offers is a single definition, a brand new definition, a revolutionary definition, a two-word definition of God. And the book suggests that if we were to apply that new two-word definition of God, we could in fact create a new global ethic that would attach itself to and be demonstrated through our political, our economic, our social, and our spiritual interactions, changing the way we interact with each other forever. But it's a revolutionary new definition with which virtually every major religion on the planet would now disagree. Which is? Oh, funny you should ask. (laughs) The two-word definition of God is pure love. Mm -hmm. Now, when I tell my audiences this at lectures, they say, oh, Neil, I thought you were going to bring us something really revolutionary. I mean, everyone agrees that God is love. Come on. Is that the best you could do? God is love. Wow, how sappy. Of course, God is love. Who wouldn't agree with that? I say, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You didn't hear me. You didn't hear me. You took me out of context. I didn't say God is love. I said God is pure love. That's a particular kind of love. Not Love as human beings understand it and as human beings express it. I said God is pure love. And then someone in the audience will say, well, all right, well, what's pure love? Pure love, I tell them, is a love that needs, requests, requires, hopes for, and commands nothing in return. So the theological question is, can we believe in a deity that wants, requests, demands from us nothing in return for God's goodness? And can we also imagine a a deity who places at our disposal what we have called the higher power and invites us to use that higher power to manifest the realities that we really choose rather than try to suffer through what we are calling forth and bringing to each other unconsciously without even thinking about it in terms of using basic fundamental spiritual principles. So the opportunity here is to imagine, what if God really doesn't want anything from us? Does that mean that God doesn't punish us for anything? There goes the entire basis of virtually every religion on the face of the earth. 
which tells you that if you don't be- behave in a certain way, if you don't do this, do this, do this, do that, and if you don't avoid doing this, this, that, and that, if you don't behave yourself, you're going to hell. You're going to everlasting damnation. Laura, let me tell you something very quickly. When I was a child, 13 years old, I was raised in a Roman Catholic family. The priest told us in catechism class in the in the school that I went to, it was a Catholic school. And the priest said, if you miss mass on Sunday without having a good excuse, you know, if you're caring for a sick parent, fair enough. Or if you have to go to work, fair enough. But if you don't have a really legitimate excuse and you miss mass on Sunday and get hit by a car on Monday and you happen to die in a terrible accident, you're going to go to purgatory. Oh my! You're, you're going to you're going to you're going to suffer in purgatory until your sins are burned off your soul. What? What? This is this is the God we have that says you you have to. And the priest said, "No, it goes further than that. If you're not Catholic, if you should happen to be Buddhist, God forbid." Or, or or Muslim, oh my gosh, or a Jewish person, oh for heaven's sake, if you don't belong to the Christian church, I guarantee you that you're going to hell. It doesn't matter how nice you are, how kind you are, how compassionate you are, how caring you are, how forgiving you are, how generous you are, or how loving you are, none of that matters. I, says God, am going to send you to everlasting damnation, torture forever in the fires of hell because you chose the wrong religion. What can I tell you? Dems the rules. And this is the God we've allowed ourselves to believe in. For hundreds and thousands of years, no wonder we treat each other the way we do, because we have modeled our behavior on the highest example we can think of. God is condemning and punishing and judging, so why shouldn't we be? Why should we bully each other from political platforms and call each other terrible names? And, and and act like two-year-olds with each other. Oh, really? You with the big ears? And we use insults as a new form of leadership in America and around the world, for that matter. Now being being threatened by the, uh, Kim Jong-il in, in North Korea, saying that a big crisis is on its way if we don't change our ways. I mean, grown men who lead countries sharing insults and threats with each other. What is up? What will it take for us to solve the problem of human behavior? Ah, maybe, just maybe, it could be the God solution. Which is pure love. And the name of the new book, The God Solution, The Power of Pure Love, I guess, is Neil Donald Walsh. So two things, Neil. I want to pick up on trying to define what you call pure love. And then number two, which happens to be in part two of your new book, um, The Power, uh, the God Solution, The Power of Pure Love, you have what's called the mechanics. So I'm, I'm assuming that pure love is the, the essence of what you have discovered after all these 39 books of, of what and who God might be. But then, so that's great. How do you put that to work for you? And if that's the case, how do we change what we're seeing in the world today simply with pure love and how does how does it operate what are the mechanics as well, explained I, I, in your new I, book sure i can't give you the mechanics you know here in just a minute and a half or two because it's it's much more sophisticated and complex than that that's why i devoted the second half of the book 
not just a few lines, but the second half of The God Solution is devoted to the mechanics of metaphysics. Uh, very, it's, it's not deep, but it's very brief and concise, but it's highly focused, highly focused four or five chapters there at the end of the book that talks about how we can use metaphysics and the various techniques that can be applied in order to produce a manifestation that we desire. Let me go back to the first part of your question, though. Pure love, how can it be used? How can we use it as a tool? It's nice to hear about a concept called pure love, but how can we use that? The book offers an interesting process, Laura. It's called the process of melding. I'm saying the word M-E-L-D-I-N-G. And, and the process of melding is a process by which we are invited to shift from thought to feeling, from thoughts to emotion, that's level number one, in the creation of the reality that we wish to engage or that we wish to see made manifest in our life. Um, we are many, many books talk about the power of positive thinking and, you know, as you think, so will it be and use your thought to create your reality. But this book goes in a whole different direction. It says, you know what, that's that's primary school stuff. That's really elementary school. Let's go to graduate school. Let's not use your thought. Your thought is simply the beginning. It's just the basis of it. Don't throw it out, but realize it's really only step one. Thought produces emotion. What you think generates is what really generates the energy that we project into the world and into our own lives. That energy we call emotion, or not coincidentally spelled E-motion, energy in motion. Mm. So energy in motion is emotion, and it's, it's what we want to use. It's, that's what we want to use as our powerful tool. And here's how you use emotion in the melding process. It's suggested in the God Solution that we look at the emotion that arises for us the minute anything in our exterior life happens, whatever it might be. Some occurrence in our outer experience takes place, and an emotion arises because of the thought that we have about what's happening right now. We're either happy about it or we're unhappy about it or we're frustrated about it or we're pleased with it. But whatever thought arises, that generates an emotion. Now, if it's a negative emotion, <clears throat> it's suggested in the God solution that we meld our emotion with what we understand God's feeling would be about the same incident, about the same arising, about the same event. What do we know that God would be feeling about any particular outcome, occurrence, or event in our life, about any particular circumstance in our life? People would say, well, I, I don't know how God would feel, but in fact, the book says, yes, you do. God would feel what perfect love feels. No need for anything in particular, no need for any return, no need for any you know payback for any investment of time and energy. God would simply literally, if it's a negative experience, love it to death in the sense of simply deciding to cover it with love and allow it to be exactly what it is and with love. Now, now what's interesting about that is that tends to change the nature of what is occurring. That when we cover something with love, we are shifting all the energy around what it is that is now arising in our life. And it changes the energy, especially if we use a tool that is suggested in the book called gratitude. What, imagine what it would be if we decided to experience gratitude for everything that's arising in our life today. 
especially if we call it a negative circumstance or an unwelcome, an unwelcome event? What if you nevertheless decided to express gratitude for it? What could cause you to be grateful for something that's unwelcome? Ah, what could cause you to feel that would be if you know who you are, that you're a spiritual entity, not a physical being, and if you know why you're here. What are you doing on the planet? Oh, it's a process called evolution. And it's by my response and my reaction to unwelcome events in particular, all events, of course, but in especially unwelcome events, events that I call unwelcome. It's by my response to those events that I evolve, that I grow and I expand in my expression and in my experience of who I really am. To give you a real simple example, a good friend insults you, maybe in public, and maybe really hurts your feelings, maybe even does something to try to damage you, or maybe someone who's not a good friend, maybe someone out there in the world at large, but you feel damaged or insulted by what they've done or said. Now, if we decide to act as we imagine and as we, as we know that God must feel about that, what would God do in a situation like that? Oh, I have an idea. Here's a thought. Maybe. Try this out. Love. Love. Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. And be a light unto the darkness. Raise not your fist to heaven and curse the darkness not, but be a light unto the darkness that you might know who you really are and that all those whose lives you touch might know who they really are as well. This is not New Age philosophy. We were told this thousands of years ago. We've just decided to, I have an idea, let's ignore what we were told thousands of years ago by all the great spiritual messengers of all the great traditions. Let's just pretend we didn't hear that. And let's, in fact, do exactly the opposite. Let's attack, attack, attack our enemies. And let's use anger to bring an end to anger. Let's use violence to bring an end to violence. Let's use hatred to try to bring an end to hatred. And let's use insults to try to bring an end to insults. Even though Einstein told us quite clearly you can't solve any problem by using the same energy that created it, let's ignore him too. Let's just yeah, ignore exactly. all the good advice. Oh, and so Neil, this is the, the, the greatest um, the greatest problem, isn't it? How it, it's to remember that, but then it's also to be able to agree to do it. That's another thing because it's it's so a level of commitment, Laura. It requires a deep soul commitment. Now I understand who I am and why I'm here. I'm not here to get the guy, get the girl, get the car, get the job, get the better job, get the better car, get the better house, get the, get the gray hair, get the sickness, get the hell out. That's not why I'm here. I didn't come to the physical realm to just do all that stuff that's totally irrelevant. 98% of the world's people are spending 98% of their time on things that don't matter. Remember that I said that it's the first chapter, I mean the first paragraph, in the first chapter in the book called The Only Thing That Matters, which is one of those 39 books that I have written. Yes. So you're right, it is a big problem today, but it takes commitment. When I decide who I am and why I'm here, suddenly my life changes. Here's the irony. I said it before, I'll say it again. The irony is that when I live that way, all the things I thought that I was seeking and yearning for and reaching for and trying to achieve and accomplish in my life fall in on you automatically. And what about then, what about accountability? What about growing through learning? Um, does any of that even matter at that point? If you're just trying to live in, as pure love, I guess it doesn't matter whether the person who hurts you or 
or took something from you or whatever, or whatever situation is deemed frustrating or horrible, does it matter if once you, you find the gratitude within that and just use it as an opportunity to express more of pure love, I guess it doesn't matter whether that person learns a lesson or they're held accountable. You're not, you're not here to teach other people a lesson. Each person, each soul is here to walk its path and it will understand and come to be aware of what it needs in order to evolve to the next level. But, you know, God, let's use God as an example. God will forgive you for nothing. I love it when I am asked to give talks in churches, and every so often I give a talk from a pulpit, and I stand up there in the pulpit and I say, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, I'm glad you're here. I've come here to bring you an important message. God will never forgive you for anything. And the people in the pews go crazy. They think, what are you telling us? I said, no, God does not forgive you for anything. Why would God need to forgive you? You can't hurt, damage, upset, frustrate, or anger God in any way. Because God has everything God could ever possibly want, and there's no way any more than a three-year-old child could hurt or frustrate or damage you in any serious way, in any way at all, really. But we are like three-year-old children, in a sense, metaphorically speaking, to that which God is. So God has no need to forgive you any more than you need to forgive a three-year-old child who does what three-year-old children do. Why? Why don't you need to forgive that child? Because you understand. Because you understand she's only three. Of course she knocked over the milk, reaching for the chocolate cake. She's a three-year-old child. Of course she did what she did. Of course he misbehaved the way he misbehaved. Of course he did. Remember this always, folks. Write this on your bathroom mirror. Understanding replaces forgiveness in the mind of the master. Say it again. It again. <laughs> I can't, I can't resist a good punchline. Oh, you're comedian in your last life. Understanding replaces forgiveness in the mind of the master. We don't need to forgive anyone. We simply understand. How is it possible for them to have done or said what they did or said? Or to ask another probing question that I often have put to people in the middle of that kind of an exchange. I will look at them calmly, without judgment, but simply ask them, Sweetheart, what hurts you so much that you feel you have to hurt me in order to heal it? That's a profound question. Remember it always. Mm. What hurts you so much that you feel you have to hurt me in order to heal it? And then once in a while in your own life, turn the question around. What hurts me so much that I feel I have to hurt you? in order to heal it. Yes. My dear, these questions and these answers will change your life overnight. Mm. Oh, Neil Donald Walsh, how I wish we had, well, another 10 episodes uh, that we could keep going on because I could just listen forever and ever um, to these amazing words. And it's the same feeling I get as when I read your books. Um, it's that incredible feeling that there are answers. There are answers. There and are answers. I'll there is what's called the God solution. I'm not making that up. There yeah. is the God solution. We simply have to finally decide to embrace it. Yes. And aptly, your book, The God Solution, 39th in a series of outstanding um, works, 
the power of pure love is the byline or the tagline on it. And that really encapsulates it all. The God solution, the power of pure love. Neil Donald Walsh, I don't even know how to say thank you um, in a way that's appropriate for just the pure humility that you have in bringing this most sacred of understanding and work. And I know you don't do it for any other reason than that's why you're here. And, and I'm just so grateful that you've shared it with us. And I pray everyone gets your hands on the God solution, the power of pure love. It will change your life just like all of his other books do. Um, they're inspired. They're highly inspired and, and have great answers in them. And there's not too many things in life that feel like they really have the answers. So thank you for this. Neil Donald Walsh, I so appreciate you. And I'm so grateful that you joined us on the way home. This will be my truly my most favorite piece. Thank you, Laura. It's very generous of you to say those things and very nice of you to have me on the program. I'm available whenever you want to do more. Just let me know. I'm oh, at your boy. service. Be careful what you offer. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> That's what she said. Uh, this is The Way Home. We'll be right back. Balance of nature's fruits and vegetables in a capsule. Changing the world one life at a time. I'm healthy. I want to stay healthy. I like the idea of what the product is all about. I believe in the body's ability to heal itself. And I also believe that fruits and vegetables from God's great earth are the best way to do that. This is derived right from fruits and vegetables, and there's no extra chemicals involved. And I thought, you know what? If I can just keep my immune system super strong, I'm in favor of it. So far, I've been able to avoid any sicknesses, and I just like to stay out ahead of these things. Get a wide variety of all your daily recommended servings of whole fruits and vegetables without having to leave your home. Right now, Balance of Nature is offering free shipping and 35% off on any new preferred order. Call 1-800-2468-751. That's 800-2468-751. Or go to balanceofnature.com and use discount code LARA. Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura. Well, I'm so grateful to have had Neil Donald Walsh, the author of 39 books, and his brand new latest, The God Solution, the power of pure love on tonight. What an inspirational uh, hour it has been. I'm so grateful for that. But we always do something inspirational at the end of all my shows. And that's good news with our good news guru, Jim Cleefield. Jimmy Dean, what do you have for us this week? Just a really wonderful story. And this rarely happens. I want to tell you the story about the miracle of birth that happened miles up in the air. There was a woman who flew recently from Salt Lake City to Hawaii and Unexpectedly, she had a newborn baby, just totally unexpected. Now, fortunately, now this happened uh, recently on a flight. Her name is Lavina Mwanga of Utah. And for her, there were three neonatal intensive care nurses and a doctor on board when all of this went down. Every once in a while, you hear something come over the PA. Is there a doctor on board? Well, thankfully, it happened in this particular situation. Well, Dr. Dale Glenn, who was the doctor on board, he said, yes, he's gotten this call in the past, but this was very urgent. It was very, very different. Well, anyway, she uh, was at 29 weeks gestation. Now, I'm not a doctor, okay, but it happened pretty quickly, this birth. Well, she uh, went into the bathroom. She passed out, and eventually she had this bundle of joy in her arms. I mean, just, she couldn't believe this happened. This is a newborn baby boy. And anyway, with no special equipment whatsoever, uh, for this preemie, they got a little creative. They used uh, shoelaces to cut the umbilical cord. Um, they also used a smartwatch to measure the baby's heart rate. They did all that. 
and uh, and this baby was born. And uh, just now these nurses here have been kind of like a de facto aunties, if you will, because uh, they helped in the process here. So it's, it's just really wonderful. You don't hear this story very, very often, but uh, she, mother and child, I understand, are doing just fine. Can you imagine, speaking of God, like think about the fact that there were three neonatal uh, nurses on board and a doctor. I mean, when does that ever happen? Really? And the fact that she was only 29 weeks, she was not expecting this baby yet. Yeah. What an incredible story. I know that they had this whole thing, though, where they, wherever the baby is born um, on the birth certificate, it is kind of where they were flying over at the time. So they were trying to determine whether that baby would be born in Utah or exactly where um, they were at that exact moment that uh, he he was born when they were flying. Well, wonderful. I love that. That's a beautiful thing. And anytime a baby is involved, it's always good news. Thank you so much, Jimmy Dean and Bob Small, my extraordinary engineer. Thank you both. And once again, thank you to Neil Donald Walsh. Please get his book, The God Solution, The Power of Pure Love. And of course, happy Mother's Day to all the moms in the world. My mom, Joan, and I'm so grateful to be the mom of Hannah. Happy Mother's Day, everybody. Lots of love from the way home. And thank you to Balance of Nature, fruits and veggies in a capsule. Remember to put Laura into the promo code when you go to balanceofnature.com to order, and you will get 35% off your first preferred order and free shipping. Lots of love to all of you. Have an amazing week. From the way home, I'm Laura Smith.